0: Well, Lucy the Valiant, Edmund the Just, Susan the Gentle, and Peter the Magnificent. These are all names from which famous series by C.S. Lewis? Do we have any? Narnia. Narnia. Well done. What noble, inspiring names they are. Narnia's King Aslan gives these great names to otherwise ordinary children. Ordinary children who, however, have been chosen... Enlightened, commissioned, protected, and now crowned by the great King Aslan in the Narnia series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, leading us to that. The author, C.S. Lewis, he borrowed heavily from the Bible for this story of um, the greatest ever true story, uh, to, to create his fiction, to help the world and the church get our heads around what Christ has done for us. King Jesus, chosen people, awake now to the adventure and meaning of eternal life. Lucy the Valiant, Edmund the Just, Susan the Gentle, and Peter the Magnificent. Now these names, I presume, weren't given to them to describe who they had been, but to inspire them to become those he was making them, those he had determined them to be. They would grow into the dignity that Aslan, the king, saw for them, grow into their names, become their truest, best, most splendid selves. You might take a look around you. Uh, Those who've come to know others around this church family quite well, what names would you give to those of those around you? And what name might you give to this one body, A DP family, what name would be appropriate for us? DPC, the something. What name would suit you? What name would you want for yourself that that expands yourself? Perhaps who you are, but also who you would love to be. After all, in Romans 8, Paul, in this chapter alone, Paul calls the Christians the predestined ones, the, the called ones, the justified ones even glorified ones, ones the spirit of life has set free from the law of sin and death. And so we could say DPC, the free, the glorious, the splendid, splendid expressing the magnificence that's both awesome but also light-filled. You might think this is all a bit over the top perhaps. You think we're just ordinary people. And there's something right about that as well. But God calls you saints. Those called to belong, to trust, to obey the living God, the one he asks us to call him father and to think of ourselves as children of God. Do we not have our own versions here? And I think we do, having come to know many of you. We have versions of Lucy the valiant, Edmund the just, Susan the gentle and Peter the magnificent. Ordinary people enlivened by the Holy Spirit People, some of us living through very real present sufferings mental health challenges relational challenges but to quote the Apostle Paul from chapter 8 these things we know as God's children aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God that's how scripture describes you DPC listen to who we are This isn't meant to be a pep talk from me. It's not a pep talk from the Apostle Paul. Paul's teachers flatter churches in the New Testament, but Paul never does that. Paul, however, is writing as an authorised messenger from God, a commissioned apostle, to lift an ordinary church's vision of itself, to see itself as it truly is from God's point of view. Why does Paul do that? Well, firstly, because it's true. He just wants them to know what the truth is. But secondly... By seeing ourselves as God sees us, we increasingly become our exalted selves with the Spirit's inner working as we get on board with what God is doing in us and making us to become who we aren't yet in in practice. When a butterfly knows it's a butterfly, it ceases living like a grub. When a butterfly knows it's a butterfly, it ceases living like a grub. Our works don't make us the butterfly. We don't turn ourselves into anything. God has made us the butterfly and wants us now to stretch our wings and realize who we are as his children. Romans 13 here raises the question, how are we to see and even to be our splendid selves? Splendid again, not of our own making, but of what Christ has given to us in his righteousness. And for all of you who know Jesus as your Lord, I would love each and all of you to take these three words home with you today and to see them as true of you that you might grow ever more into them. Following in your outline there, you, the loving, see yourselves that way. You, the light, see yourselves that way. You, the Lord Jesus' image, see yourselves that way. So firstly, you, the loving. Paul calls God's children to pursue once again love. He just keeps talking about love, just like Jesus did, just like the Old Testament did. And last week, if you remember, Paul was um, urging Christians to give what is due to authorities to us. If it's a teacher, respect to the teacher. If it's the government, uh, submitting to them taxes, revenue, respect, honour, whatever is due to the authorities or to those around us. And I think that explains the way he introduces this call to us to love again in verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding. That is, again, give what is due. Uh, Christians seek to repay what we owe. We're not a people known for bad debts, I hope, or unpaid bills if we can at all help it. We might need to sometimes ask one another for help. But then Paul adds one exception, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except... The continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. It seems Christians are, well, we owe it to each other to love one another. Just as a body's organs care for each other, as we saw in chapter 12, we owe it to each other. We're bound together as a body to show up for each other. Perhaps as a a tightly knit team come together. White blood cells are needed over here. White blood cells are supplied. Red blood cells, present. Brain alert, we need it, ready. Lungs, liver, toes, present, interested, available. There are no spectator body parts, no passive parts, no unnecessary parts. And so a consumerist mindset in the church is very strange indeed. I come here because it suits me. That might lead us here. And that's great if that's led you here, but it can't be how we continue for very long. When we come to DPC or to any church of Jesus, we come not only to be served, but to serve. I come to serve. And so family members owe it to each other to love each other. If you've been here one week or three weeks, three months, do keep settling in. And one way to keep settling in or to settle in faster, as we might uh, discuss at the newcomer's lunch, Uh, One way to feel less self-conscious is to start even now looking out for others around you. There may be others here also in their first week. Perhaps someone struggling at the moment who's been here five years and just asking how they're going. Who are these people I've now found myself among and how can I encourage them and even love them? If you've been here for some months or years already, do use your increased settledness to to lovingly take the initiative. You might introduce yourself first, invite first, ask and listen and encourage first. Now I keep mentioning love here because Paul does and and some ways we might do that together as as a congregation. But we might ask, why does Paul keep coming back to love? Why does Jesus and Paul and Scripture put love as the chief Christian virtue? Well, the reason Paul gives one another reason, lots of them, but verse 8 is that love, well, it covers so many bases in terms of ethics. Um, Paul writes in verse 8, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Now, there are loads of good laws in the Old Testament. And so that's a big claim, that if you love others, you, you've got them all covered. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. But think about it. A loving person will find themselves in their loving ways at the same time expressing generosity and mercy and patience and forgiveness and justice. All the things the law prescribes, whether it's Moses' law or the law of a healthy human or a social conscience. I think one mistake our society makes is to esteem other things above love, to promote lesser virtues as the ultimate virtue. And we see in the news people or at work pursue their causes but in quite unloving ways. Whether it's to get a political thing across the line or um, someone perhaps even so zealous for compassion, um, giving mercy, might in that cause disregard the equally important justice. Justice and mercy have to belong together. Love includes both. If we're focused on success or results or our, our primary ethic is, is to produce hard working, um, a hard work ethic, our kids might get the sense we'd love them if, if they were different, if they perform better, if they could just get their act together. But not that they are loved now just as they are. And so while we might promote different virtues to our kids, love really has to dominate the love modelled by Christ, is wonderfully well-rounded. And it also happens to be what human beings crave in order to thrive. As you age, you don't grow out of the sole benefits of being loved. We were made to matter to people, and love expresses that. You matter to me, I care about you. And in God's kindness, Christians in loving churches... Have that steadfast love from the church we belong to that makes thriving and loving others possible. Verse 8. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Um, Sex that breaks a marriage bond um, is deeply unloving. We think, sometimes call it an affair. Um, I take it increasingly common around Australia. But really hurts those involved in it and really hurts people around those involved in it. It's not love, even though it might be labeled as love. The next one, you shall not murder." Um, killing, as we've seen in recent weeks, there may be times authorities need to kill. Now the Bible doesn't say "Don't kill. it says "Don't murder." Um, but like adultery, murder brings ruin and devastation. Love won't lead anyone to murder so too stealing and coveting, verse 9, and and countless other ways lovelessness shows itself in society and in our relationships. And so, says Paul, what Moses tells us to do is covered when humans love each other. And what it forbids are the more extreme acts of lovelessness. And so love helps with both the positives and avoiding the negatives. Love achieves the good, verse 9, but it also prevents us from choosing The harmful alternatives of verse ten, love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. Now we could say many things about love. How do we do that as a church? It's a place home groups can wrestle through that with um, uh, morning tea as well. May I just say two things? The first thing is that my time at uh, DPC is my chance. My limited number of days and weeks and years to know and love you. Uh, If a pastor doesn't love the congregation, there's a problem. I will do this imperfectly, but I pray I will love you truly and earnestly in my limited way. The second thing to say is that your time at DPC is your chance, your limited number of days and weeks and years to know and love others. You too will do this imperfectly. But I pray you too will love and do so truly and earnestly. There may be things holding you back from that. I don't know. Uh, Maybe things from your past. Maybe a conflict in the church. There may be things you need to work through. It may be just shyness makes it difficult for you to step over a mark and, and be other conscious. Whatever it is, your love might lead you to get through those things. Put your name in the gap. You, the loving. And may our congregation be loving as well. Secondly, you, the light, verses 11 to 13. Now, why do I talk about having, as a pastor, you as a congregation, having limited number of days, weeks, months to do this? I'm borrowing this from Paul Paul shows us we have this limited opportunity perspective that comes with Christianity. It's like a closing down sale of this age because we already see the rays coming of the the next age, the coming age. And so there's a sense in Christianity of seize the day. Now is our time. And it comes out powerfully again in verse 11. Do this, he writes, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. I sometimes hear Christians say, when I was a teenager, I was really on fire for the Lord. I was enthusiastic. Well, may I say, you now have more reason to be enthusiastic today. Salvation, relief, the goodness of the good news of the kingdom, it's now all closer in years than it was when you were more enthusiastic in the past. The more elderly among us could be excused for being the most on fire for the Lord Jesus. Because if nature takes its course and if Jesus doesn't return, we who are older may have less time to wait than those who are younger. If you've been a Christian for 30 years, your salvation is 30 years nearer now than it was when you first believed. What a great benefit of aging! We're getting physically nearer to the risen Lord Jesus. Remember the the American pastor Tim Keller's final words before his flesh gave way earlier this year? He wrote, I'm thankful for the time God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. And so too life passes so quickly for all of us. I sometimes look on Facebook and I see other pastors. They're just half a generation older than me, but they're looking like old people. Um, their youth is gone. Perhaps their best ministry days are now behind them. Salvation is nearer for them. And I've noticed some little kids have called me an old man. I think that happens when you hit 40 and I'm, I'm beyond that. Now, I don't mind being an old person, but it reminds me my days of productivity here on earth are limited. Now matters for me and for you. This season, today matters. Today matters. You being here today matters. The way you go about Monday to Saturday as Christ's disciples matters in your workplace. 2023 matters. If Paul wrote Romans in AD 57, he's got seven or eight years left. He doesn't know, but he's going to die around 65 AD. He's got about 90 months to burn for Jesus, 390 weeks to make a difference to the ordinary men, women, and children he encountered. How many weeks do you have left? Will you have one week less than you did last Sunday. As one Christian puts it, with a perishing world around us, to sleep is cruel. With eternity so close at hand, it is madness. We must be awake, alive, understanding the present time, as Paul writes it there. Verse 11, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believe. If you're younger among us, um, don't wait until you're old to live purposely for Jesus, but plant seeds now that in 30 years' time will have great effect. Have fun, but also learn to take yourself and your potential for God seriously. The God who says so to the Spirit in order to reap to the Spirit. Invest in yourself, take yourself seriously and grow as a disciple. Paul likewise says, verse 12, perhaps the next life is so long that we can view this life's life, life uh, as so short that he writes, verse 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. I looked and uh, today's sunrise was going to be 6.37 a.m. And so scripture saying something like, consider it as 6 a.m. now, 37 minutes to go. It's dark, but dawn is coming. Teach us to number our days, says Psalm 90, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Don't assume you live forever or that weeks just roll away meaninglessly. You, the light, you're the person of the light awaiting the dawning light of Christ's glorious coming. And therefore, Paul says, verse 12, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. I remember some years ago reading a story of a Roman captain in Nero's time in the first century. He was in charge of soldiers who were under orders to persecute Christians. They'd been stripped of their clothing and put out on a, a frozen lake to gradually die, while the soldiers had a fire and would mock at the Christians singing hymns until their death. When one of the freezing Christians collapsed, the Roman captain who had, by the way, become a Christian and hadn't told the soldiers. He couldn't watch on anymore as his fellow brothers and sisters were out there dying. And so he stripped off his clothes, his uniform, and joined them in the song, preferring to die with Christ's people than to persecute them one moment longer. To become Christ is to say no more to the darkness and to take the Lord Jesus and his cause seriously. See yourself as a person of light, wearing, verse 12, the armour of light, of Christ's ways, ways of the daytime that have no shame attached. If you're ashamed of it, it's probably not a good thing to do. Or decently, verse 13 is the word Paul uses. That's becomingly or fittingly or living with propriety, uprightness. A disciple who is a disciple of Jesus with no space whatsoever for again verse 13 more traits of carousing we don't use that word very often in english but it's the word of drunken parties and the sin that comes out of drunken parties parties that's in my case in my friends started uh, as a late teenager drunkenness the next trait um, drunkenness isn't a christian activity if you have a drink or two have a drink or two but our minds are Christ's and alcohol and drugs take our mind away from, from Christ's lordship uh, we lose our agency and our control that leads us to live for Christ next Paul mentions verse 13 not in sexual immorality sex outside of marriage um, marriage is designed for sex and debauchery, uh, intoxication uh, not in dissension Paul says, hostile disputes and jealousy these kinds of traits um, are things we want to bring to God. If, if we fall down in them, let's, let's bring them to God and work through them. You are light. Why let the darkness in? Uh, why would we pretend we're part of the darkness, part light? But you, like your Lord, bring light into the world with your protective armour of light that pursues righteousness and keeps you from sin, we love Christ and those lost in darkness by being a person of light. The world needs you to be light. So you the loving, you the light, and point three, you the Lord Jesus, his image bearers. Um, throughout Romans, Paul has tried to express our union with Christ in so many ways. In Christ, you're with Christ, you've died with him, you're buried with him, you've been raised with him. Nothing can separate, separate you from Christ and his love. Romans chapter 8, you've been predestined, you've been conformed to Christ's image. He's making you like Christ. He's the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. He's our righteousness. He's your life. And so Paul can say, verse 14, drawing this whole section together, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourselves with him and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Uh, What are the desires of the flesh? Well, they're things our body wants. They're the things that are just of this age, not have no relation to the coming age. Our bodies want what they want. But the old selves that didn't know Christ have to now submit to Christ's new impulses and new priorities. The life of a butterfly, the spirit of Christ lives in us and now we're to embrace that. When a butterfly knows it's a butterfly, it ceases living like a grub. We've got wings to use. We're Christ's righteous people to live now as Christ's righteous people. We cast off the works of darkness, not to become something we're not, but for our bodies and minds and lives to catch up with the reality of who God says we are. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, And notice how he says we can do that. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh or make no provision for the flesh is another way to put it. Now, usually the flesh doesn't get what it wants immediately. Um, There are usually, before an affair, say a married couple, before there's an affair, there's usually some steps before that. There are long conversations and attraction. There are then longer conversations. There's touching and flirting. There's drinks and there are more times together. That's making provision for the flesh. Could have been cut off so much earlier. The flesh too wants to impress our friends with prestige or possessions or position. Make no provision for such desires. Tell your desires where to go. They're not of Christ. Get away. Our flesh can have a desire for more and more wealth. That flesh may want you to and lead you to check your bank balances every day or check ComSec every day. If you realise this is controlling you, think of making less provision for it in your life. You might remove some apps from your phone like Comsec or banking or domain or whatever it is that's got you. You can still log in when you need to, but it's harder for your flesh to get what it wants so easily. Be a friend to your godly self by making it harder for your ungodly self to get what it wants. When I was... In my early 20s at Sydney Missionary and Bible College, we had a visiting lecturer come and he came to address the young men to um, encourage sexual purity. And he said, Once a year in winter, you get undressed, you turn the cold water tap on, and you get into that shower. Show your body it isn't the boss. That was the message. Impulses, desires, they're not in control. You show your body who's in control. Don't let your flesh decide everything for you. Let Christ be your guide. Clothe yourselves in him. I had a cold shower this week. I hate cold water and it was awful. Some people do it for fun or for uh, regularly. Um, I struggled. I conclude by sharing uh, the story in our service sheets. It's the conversion story of someone that someone else has penned, um, of our brother, Augustine of Hippo, who went to be with our Lord a long time ago, .AD. 430. Let me read it to you to close. Child of a Christian mother, surrounded by prayer, highly intelligent and well-educated, Augustine began, as he describes it, to be addicted to sex when he was 16 years old. My youth bubbled up and obscured and darkened my soul so far that it could not distinguish the beauty of love from the muddy darkness of lust. While at university, he abandoned whatever Christian belief and morals he had inherited from his mother, but the yearning of his heart for some meaning in his life was not quenched. Philosophy failed to satisfy, and he began to dabble in astrology. His darkness and misery increasing, an interest in Christianity was awakened by sermons he heard in the town church. But he found his sensuality acting as a great wall barring his way. Then one day as he sat in his garden, he heard a child's voice calling out words and sounding like sounded like part of a game. Take up and read, take up and read. He found a New Testament and opened at random to this passage. Not in partying and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensual indulgence, not in dissension and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. This is the verse he read. The words went to his heart as an arrow of God and Augustine went on to become the great preacher, writer, theologian and leader of the North African church of the early 5th century. The Spirit did in and through Augustine what he could never have done for himself. God saw him, to be light, to be like the Lord Jesus, to be loving, and he made him to be so. You, the loving, you, the light, you who are clothed in the Lord Jesus.